In the book of Revelation, we had in chapter 1, of course, the vision that John saw of the Lord in verses 12 through 18. And we have the key to the whole book of Revelation in verse 19 of the first chapter. We gave you that. Verse 19 is the key to understanding this book. And if you miss that key, you miss understanding it. And it tells us of the things that thou hast seen, what John had seen, that was the past. The things which are, that was the present, and that would include chapters 2 and 3, which means the church age, they're still present. Though John saw seven local churches, we still are in that age of the church. And then, in the last part of the verse, it says, And the things which shall be hereafter. And we have a turning point of the things of the future, beginning in the fourth chapter. And having said that, we've already dealt with two or three of these letters to these local churches of Asia Minor that the Lord Jesus picked out Himself for John to write about and deliver the message of these uh, to these seven churches of Asia. And we've already had the church of Ephesus, the church of, of uh, Smyrna, and the church of Pergamos. And now we come to the fourth one, the church of Thyatira. And it's in chapter 2, verse 18. Now we'll give you a little bit in reference to these other churches, so I won't repeat it now because it will be in the lesson that we will study tonight. Now then, let's read in the 18th verse down through the 29th verse. I'll read this passage of Scripture and then we'll come back and talk about it. It says in verse 18, Revelation 2.18 please. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her. By the way, this is spiritual adultery. It's talking about uh, going away from God and, and being uh, uh, following idols and things of that nature. So it's not just literally fornication and adultery, though we speak of them here. And we're, uh, there's a possibility that there's some of that also, as well as the spiritual adultery. Uh, I'll read verse 22 again. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. She will go into the great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am He which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, everyone didn't fall for it, uh, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have, 
already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give uh, will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now then, we'll try to give you a lesson on this particular church. Thyatira, actually, we said earlier, if you look at verse 18, means a continual sacrifice. They were in a period in which they were sacrificing daily, whether it was in Romanism or where the people sacrificed and thought they could be saved by works. But the thought is to try to earn salvation. If you'll notice in verse 19, it mentions their works twice. I know thy works, and then it says, and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Salvation is by grace, not by works. Now, they had many works that were commendable, and the Lord commended them for works. But as far as salvation is concerned, it's by grace through faith. Because none of us can be saved by works. The Bible says it's not of works lest any man should boast. And if salvation were by works, then one person could say I'm more saved than the other one because he might have more works. So you see, you can't evaluate salvation by works. It's by grace. Now, there are many people that have uh, great works, lesser works, some works, or no works whatsoever. But the point is, it's not the degree of works in order to be saved. Now, Thyatira uh, also was a fabric dyeing center. They had a, a certain way of dyeing fabrics. Remember, it, Lydia was a Thyatira in Acts chapter 16, and Paul preached to her, and it says she was a seller of purple, and they were known for their fabrics and for how they were dyed. And there was a certain uh, matter, M-A-D-D-E-R root, that they took uh, some of the uh, concoction that they put together, and as well as from a shellfish, out of the throat of a certain kind of little shellfish, they took one drop of real purplish dye. And they say that for one drop of that dye, they would pay a hundred dineros. Or maybe I got my figures wrong. I think it was a thousand. And that would be equal to a thousand days' work. One dineros was a day's work. So it was very, very, very expensive. And to, to make the dye. That, so they were well known for a fabric dyeing center. And there was also in that place of Thyatira a female oracle named Sambathi, S-A-M-B-A-T-H-E, who was a fortune teller. Now then, there was a lot of things going on there as far as the uh, corruptness of the town itself. And that may be why we run across this woman here that calls herself a prophet named Jezebel. And, of course, the name rings a bell to us as far as the Old Testament is concerned, doesn't it? And we'll see that maybe it's a symbol given here of the woman that we know to be in the Old Testament. We might say some things about her in a little bit. Now, I want you to notice verse chapter 2, verse 1, the last part. We have 
to Ephesus, he introduces himself as one who walked among the seven lampstands. You see that in verse 1? Just look in this second chapter, and I'll give you several verses here. Verse 1, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That's the way Jesus introduces himself to Ephesus. Now then, down in verse 8, to Smyrna, the first he introduces himself in this way, as the first and the last, and who was dead and is now alive. Look at this. And unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Now that's how he presents himself to Smyrna. And then to the church of Pergamos, verse 12. Notice what he says here. He's as one who has a sharp, two-edged sword. And in that respect, he's warring against uh, taking the sword of the Spirit and warring against false doctrines. Because we know as we studied that last one that there was the doctrine of Balaam and there was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that, that the Lord Himself fought against. And He says, these are the things that I hate. The doctrine of Balaam, that's verse 14. And the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is verse 15. And so He presents Himself to that church, verse 12, Pergamos, as one that has a sharp sword. And the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. But to this church... Of Thyatira, verse 18, and look at your Bibles as we try to study this, and you'll get, you'll see exactly with your own eyes what we're talking about. It says, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God. To Thyatira, he presents himself not as a sharp sword, not as the one walking in the midst of the candlesticks, not as some of the other ways, but as the Son of God. Now then, he is assuming his rightful position. And this is in contrast, we've already read about the woman Jezebel, in contrast to Jezebel, who refers to herself as an oracle of God, an infallibility of an authority, and she's the one that teaches uh, and seduces God's servants. In verse 20 is a very important verse. And so she's a false teacher. And the Lord had that against this church because they would suffer or permit that false teacher to teach. Now, he's not using his title here in verse 18, the son of uh, man or the son of Mary or the son of Joseph. He loved the the title, the son of man, all through the Gospels. Jesus loved the title uh, as... uh, He was the the son of Mary. He was born of Mary. And he was also spoken of in some that were not very knowledgeable that he was the son of Joseph. Is not this Joseph's son? They spoke of Jesus. But he uses the name the Son of God. And he asserts himself to be, as the Son of God, omnipotent. God is all-powerful. Omnipotent. And because he knows all things, he says in verse 19, I know thy works, because he knows all things, he is omniscient. Those are terms we use to express what God is. God is all-knowing, and he's omnipotent, all-powerful. And by the way, he's all-seeing too, isn't he? He sees all, as well as knows all. And we'll find in the next verse, in this same verse, the introductory verse, Keep your eyes fixed on verse 18 that he'll tell about his eyes and about his feet. 
So he presents himself as the Son of God. In verse 18 he says, Who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Penetrating to the very depths of the heart. Such are the eyes of Jesus. You and I may hide from one another. But from His eyes we do not hide. The Bible says in the Old Testament, His eyes are upon the ways of man. He seeth all His goings. There is no darkness, no shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. He's got all-seeing eyes. And He knows He can see us. And not only does He see us on the outside, He sees the inside of us. He knows what's in our heart. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, uh, 4 verse 12, that the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Listen, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, God knows what's in our heart. We don't have to, We cannot hide from God. And so we must keep our hearts right. The Bible says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. What we do is what we feel. He's got eyes like a flame of fire. Remember when Peter came out, uh, when Jesus came out of the judgment hall and looked upon Peter as he had denied the Lord. Remember when Peter denied the Lord three times? And Jesus came out of the judgment hall and he turned, the Bible says, he turned and looked upon Peter. And that look caused Peter to realize, uh, it says, then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said that he would deny him. And Peter went out and wept bitterly because he knew that Jesus knew. And it was just that look. I don't believe Jesus looked upon Peter with condemnation. I don't believe he looked upon him with, I told you so. I believe it was such, such a searching look that Peter realized that he did tell him and that he did love him and that he had betrayed him, and he went out and wept bitterly. And he knew that Jesus knew what he had done. Jesus didn't hear it, but Jesus knew it. He doesn't have to hear us to know it either. And it doesn't have to be audible for him to know it. The Lord knows what's in our hearts. And beloved, let me try to help all of us tonight. Every one of us, let's make our hearts right, and then we won't have any problems. With one another. Keep our hearts with all diligence. And we have to learn to give and forgive. And if we'll learn to do that. And Jesus said, when you say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our debts, our trespasses. We forgive those that trespass against us. He says, if you forgive men of their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you of your trespasses. Someone says, well, I'm, I, I'm not going to forgive this person. Well, listen. If we don't forgive, we can't pray for forgiveness. That's just that what it means. We can't pray for forgiveness. It says, if you forgive not men of their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. We've got to have forgiving hearts, haven't we? There's no way around it. It's just one of those things that God's uh, principles that we have to have in our hearts. 
Sometimes you say, well, it's hard for me to forget. Well, it is for all of us, I'm sure, from time to time. But we have to learn to do it. We have to learn to do it in spite of ourselves. But his eyes are like a flame of fire, penetrating the very depths of the heart. And then his feet are like fine brass. Here Christ takes on the symbol of judgment. Look at this. And his feet are like fine brass. That's the last part of verse 18. See it in the Scripture? Brass in the Bible is a metal that's used as a symbol of judgment. Remember back in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, chapter 21, verse 9, it says, And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. It came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. The judgment was upon that serpent of brass. And God commanded Moses to make it. And brass is a symbol of the judgment. So, this serpent of brass, by uh, the people looking, they had been bitten by fiery serpents. They had the sentence of death. They were dying. It was a plague. And when they beheld that serpent of brass, they lived. They lived. Because they could say, God has provided a remedy for me. And the judgment won't fall upon me because this brass symbolizes the judgment is there. And I beheld and that uh, serpent of brass. Jesus used that same symbol in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. And He says this. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What does it mean? It means that one, when one looks upon Christ who is bearing our judgment and bore our judgment on the cross, then we can have everlasting life because our judgment was placed upon Christ. And that's exactly where it was placed. The Bible teaches that He bore our sins in His own body on the tree and the penalty and the judgment that was due our sins. You know, if you have judgment coming because of sin, you say, I have a substitute and I have one that is my sin bearer and that's Jesus and He bore my sins and my judgment for my sins and He did that on the cross. And therefore, I don't have to do it. In John chapter 5, verse 24, it tells us that we will not have to come into judgment because of it. It says, Verily, verily, you might... Memorize this one. John 5 verse 24. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life already. Present possession. Hath. You have it in your hands. Hath. I have this Bible. It says, Hath everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Now, I like that, don't you? We're exempt from judgment because Jesus bore our judgment. If Jesus didn't bear your judgment, you're going to have to meet it one day. But since He did bear your judgment, you don't have to meet it. You met it when you met Jesus and received Him by faith as your sin bearer and as your substitute and as your uh, atoning sacrifice. And you received Him by faith. You believed on Him that He he, uh, had done all of this for you. And when you did, you are exempt from judgment. Someone says, aren't you afraid that this is not going to work? That you'll die and you'll be judged uh, in that great white throne judgment? Not if you put your faith in Jesus. Now, there is a great white throne judgment for the unbelieving. And there is a Christian judgment. The throne, the, the throne of judgment 
uh, the judgment seat of Christ where our work and our life and, and how we've lived is going to be taken into consideration. All that's coming up. And we should lit, stand in awe at that because we know we should live like we ought to live. But brass is a symbol of judgment. Now notice back in our text, and we'll try to progress along and give you this. He says, I know thy works. Look at verse 19. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. So he says, I know thy works and the charity. Christ credits this church with works of, uh, and love. Uh, charity means love. He credits them with what's good. There was good in this church. It was not all bad. Even though he says in the next verse, I have somewhat against thee because you have Jezebel in there teaching. And he, he gives the reason why he has something against them. He says, I know thy faith. Look at that word. Thy service and faith. That's all verse 19. What is faith? Faithfulness. Are you faithful to the Lord? Loyal? Loyalty? Dependable? Are you reliable? You could count on these people. There were many of them you could count on. And he says, I know that there's a lot of you I can count on. You know, some Christians run well for a season and then they stop. Keep on running well. The Bible says, let's run the race. And let's, uh, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians, chapter 5 and verse 7, ye did run well. Paul speaks to the Galatians and he says, you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? And then he tells them in chapter 6, verse 9, let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So let's keep on keeping on. And don't give up. So he says, I know thy faith. And he says, I know thy patience. Look at verse 19. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience. You know what patience is? Patience is the outgrowth of love and loyalty. If you have love and you're faithful, patience will be the outgrowth of that. Someone might say, well, I have no patience with this person or that person. Well, that's something we need to learn. Because it's the outgrowth of love and it's the outgrowth of loyalty. And when you really love, and when you really have faith and are faithful, and you're dependable and you're reliable, out of that will grow a, a way that you can be patient and learn to be patient with others. In verse 20 he says, I have a few things against thee. Look at that. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. This church <clears throat> mixes paganism and Christianity. It was given over to idolatry. And we'll go back and talk a little bit about Jezebel in a moment. This is a church period of history from uh, 500 to 1500 A.D. It was called the Dark Ages, by the way. It was during the Dark Ages. 
And remember shortly after that in about 1750, 1500 to 1750, in the next church that we study, the church of Sardis, in the third chapter, verse 1, we'll see it's a period of reformation. Change took place. And of course, October the 31st, 1517, is when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And that's when the Protestant movement became uh, alive. And the church of Sardius indicates that period of church history. But this particular period of history is from 500, that we're studying, 500 to 1500 A.D. And it has to do with with uh, paganism and idolatry and mixed with Christianity, kind of a conglomerate of everything. And Jezebel is a perfect picture of that. We'll find that Jezebel will tell us all about that in a little bit when we get into studying it. Now, as we consider these churches, Ephesus would not tolerate evil. The first church would not tolerate evil, but was lacking in love. Now, Thyatira was gaining in love, but was tolerating evil. I mean, it's kind of a, kind of a catch situation, isn't it? Someone says, we ought to have more love. Well, and tolerate evil. Or we ought to tolerate evil and be lesser in love. How are you going to balance these things? We have these two extremes with us today. Don't we? Someone says, let's love everybody regardless of what they believe. The Bible does teach us to love everybody. But the Bible also tells us that righteousness has no fellowship with unrighteousness. So, evil cannot be tolerated. We need to increase in love and we need to also guard against evil. So, let me give you that again. Ephesus would not tolerate evil. Remember that first church? They tried those that were false apostles and found them liars. Those apostles that claimed to be and found them liars. They would not tolerate evil. But Jesus said concerning that church of Ephesus, Thou hast left thy first love. It says, in, in your steadfastness to fight evil, you've left your first love. He said to this church of Thyatira, You have charity, you have works, you have patience. But he says, you've got wickedness in there too. You're tolerating evil. You're suffering that wicked woman Jezebel to teach and to seduce God's people. Now then, you cannot have it both ways. Let's try to put this in our modern day Christian atmosphere. Someone says, let's just love everybody in every church and it doesn't make any difference what they believe. Now then, we do love everybody in every church. But it does make a difference what they believe. See, that's where you have to draw the line. Now then, there are some churches that say, well, we're going to stand for what they believe, and they're lacking in love. We have both of these extremes in the world today. And someone says, well, Brother Joyce, just because you won't join up with a certain church and do this that a certain church does, and be really... uh, have really a good situation with them, then you're unloving. No, if you do not, you cannot love them without tolerating the evil and the things that are wrong. I know a church here in Rio Dosen had a gentleman to invite me to their goings on just this 
next week or two, I didn't want to go <laughs> because I don't believe in what they're doing. I don't believe in who they're letting meet in their church either. Most of you know what I'm talking about. David was rebuked by Nathan for his sin. David was a good man. But he had sinned and Nathan the prophet rebuked David because of his sin. Achan and his household were judged for sin back in the Old Testament. And God told uh, uh, them to remove the evil from among them. And also the New Testament records such uh, things going on in the, uh, as far as the New Testament church, Ananias and Sapphira were uh, smitten down and they died in the presence of Peter because in the church because they had lied to the Holy Spirit. An offending brother at Corinth in the church at Corinth was, was also uh, dealt with. And Paul said that you have to put that evil out from among you because he had committed such a sin as not had been known among the Gentiles. And if you'll remember in the next book, and that was in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and then in the next book, in 2 Corinthians, he says, restore that one because he repented. You see, there's always a way to get back if we do right. If we repent of our sins and turn back to God. Alright, that woman Jezebel, the Old Testament Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbal, the pagan king of the Zidonians, and they were Baal worshippers. They were Baal worshippers. And Jezebel married Israel's wicked king, Ahab. And after that, she had married this wicked king, Ahab, Israel's king. Think God's chosen uh, people and their king. And Jezebel married this wicked king, Ahab. And after that, she, that, she set up uh, the worship of Baal in Israel. See how it creeps in? Creeps in by relationships, doesn't it? By the way, when you marry, you marry someone that believes like you do. It'll help. Let me tell you something else. Let me read it for you. In 1 Kings chapter 16, <clears throat> I want to begin reading with verse 29. And it tells us about Jezebel. It says, And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Amrah, here's Ahab, to reign. Over Israel. And Ahab the son of Amrah reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab the son of Amrah did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. This was the lesser of the things that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. You think you don't influence one another? You do. And, and that's exactly what happened to, to Ahab. In 1 Kings 21, verse 25, it says, But there was none like unto Ahab, listen carefully, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. She caused it. Or at least added to it and kept it going. 
And you can read passages of Scripture that will show you in 2 Kings 23, verse 7 is just one verse, but if you read 2 Kings 23, but it says in verse 7, And he broke down the houses. This is another king that came in after and broke down the houses of the Sodomites that were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the grove. It had become so corrupt and degraded. And that's some idea. The 23rd of Second Kings will show you the depths of degradation to which Jezebel led the children of Israel. And that's what uh, Jesus is saying about this church of Thyatira, that you suffer that woman Jezebel that calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants. So there was evil in that church. You know, a good woman is the best thing on earth. Every man that has a good wife ought to be thankful to God. And by the way, every young man ought to pray for that kind of a wife. And every young woman ought to pray that God will, will give her a, a young man that will be exactly what God would have her to have. The one that God would have her to have. For our young people here, you pray for the right person to come your way. Both boys and girls. You pray for the right one to come your way. And you put yourself among those people that would be the right one. Don't go out here at the honky-tonk and expect to find the right one. That won't be the right one for you. So you pray that God will give you the right person. The church owes a great debt to the faithful women that we have. We owe them a great debt in our homes as godly wives and mothers. Women were the last at the cross and they were the first at the tomb of Jesus. But an evil woman is most dangerous. She's not the best thing on earth, the most dangerous thing on earth. And that's where Jezebel comes in. Many false religions and modern delusions were begun by women. You see, a good woman is good and a, wo- a wicked woman is wicked. That's what it amounts to. Same way with men. A good man is good and a wicked man is wicked. You know, I used to think that when you got older, and, and I love all the folks up there at the care center. I go up there and see them. But I've gone up there and they'll be the sweetest little old lady putting up with everything and as kind as she can be to you. There'll be one there that's cursing every other breath. You say, preacher, that's true. It doesn't change you when you get older. You're going to be older. When you get older, you're going to be just what you are now. You make sure that's right. If you'll get it right now, it'll be right then. But if you don't get it right now, it won't be right when that time comes. I'll guarantee you the same person. Age won't change character. Character has to be there to start with. We have to get it right now. And where I've got faults, I better improve on them now. Where I've got things that I need to deal with, I need to deal with them now. In the same way with you. This woman Jezebel taught and seduced Christians to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed to idols. Notice down in verse 24 it says, As many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the deep things... Of Satan, the depths of Satan. The Greek 
Greek there says the deep things of Satan. When she was teaching, she probably told them how deep her understanding was of what she was doing. I'm always a little leery of those that tell me how deep they are in the Word of God. I'll say, well, I'm as deep as what it says here. That's as deep as I go. I didn't have any special vision. I didn't go up on a mountain somewhere and a bunch of tablets laid down there for me to say, well, I had a vision of an angel and a vision of Jesus. The Bible says no man has seen the Lord at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. There's nothing new about Jezebelism. It has been with us from the beginning. It's responsible for all the mixture of paganism and Christianity and Romanism. And in all churches where you find a mixture of beliefs just flowing around trying to be mixed together. I don't want a church that just has a, everyone that comes along say, well, this is what we believe. And the next guy that joined church, this is what we believe. One of them believes in this, and one believes in that, and one believes in the other. There needs to be some principles. There needs to be the doctrines of grace and of faith. There needs to be some rules and regulations established. And Jesus established these doctrines of faith and of grace. And He said, the Son of Man came not to be, excuse me, <clears throat> to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for me. He taught from the beginning that He was to be the Redeemer. And the things that go along with redemption and with salvation by grace. He says, all that come unto me, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He said, come to Christ for salvation. Peter preached the same thing. He says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so it comes right on down to us. And if we'll take the stand that God's Word uh, will give us, well, we'll be all right. Jezebel leads to spiritual adultery. Notice in verse uh, uh, 22, Behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her. A spiritual adultery. James said, in the book of James, he says, Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He says, You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In the book of James. What's he saying? He's saying it's spiritual adultery to be joined to the world and what the world offers. And we're talking about anything that is opposite to faith in Christ. We're not talking about the earth. The earth is good. The trees are good. The flowers, the grass, the everything God has given us, the water, the, the, the food, the everything. Sitting over there, Brother Randy and I was drinking a cup of coffee was, we were watching just a few people having their sandwich over at McDonald's. And I said, Randy, I said, do you realize how many, how much it takes for the Lord to feed everyone just this one meal around the world? How much food and how much supply there has to be? And God has supplied that through His the way He set things up in this world so that folks all over the world can eat not just one meal a day, but sometimes two or three. And sometimes we eat more than that and shouldn't. Isn't that right? Sometimes we get too many meals. But the Lord has graciously provided for a whole world of people. We're talking about millions and millions of people. 
And we're not, not talking about just one meal and then for a year there's no more. We're talking about consistently, day in and day out. And so God has provided that. But this church, notice what it said in verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest uh, that woman Jezebel which calleth herself. Now notice she called herself a prophet. Prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit a fornication, to eat things sacrificed to idols. See, idolatry was in there. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. She will not repent. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Those that follow her would be also going into tribulation. Jezebel leads, we said, to spiritual adultery. And we need to beware of any teaching that makes God's people unfaithful to Him or to His church. And the trouble with Thyatira was that they put up with Baal. They put up with it. See, it says, Thou sufferest that woman, verse 20. You permit it to happen. They put up with it. Instead of standing with the Lord in direct opposition to it, The church of Ephesus tried those, notice, they tried those in verse 2 that said that they were apostles and are not and has found them liars. The church of Ephesus, though lacking in love, was standing for the truth. This church, though it had love, was permitting evil. So what are you going to do? You're going to have love and also you're going to have a stand. You can do both. It's not impossible to do both. The church of Smyrna, the church of Philadelphia, there's two churches that the Lord does not condemn anything that happens in them. The church of Smyrna, we've already studied it in verse 8. And the church of Philadelphia, which is in the next chapter, brotherly love, there's not anything said against those two churches. Evidently, they had love and works and they stood for the truth. And they did it under the threat of persecution. The church of Smyrna did it under the threat of persecution, didn't they? We just studied that persecuted church in our last lesson. And we're going to find that we have to take our stand. We live in a world that wants peaceful coexistence. We, they want peaceful coexistence in the political realm. They want peaceful coexistence in the moral realm. Never mind. Don't have any standards. Just what one fellow believes is good as another. They want peaceful coexistence in the religious realm. The philosophy of this day and age is let's all get together and everything will be okay. It won't be okay either. Because we can't all have fellowship with one another if we don't have a basis of that fellowship. John tells us in the first epistle of John that our fellowship is with the Father. He says, these things I write unto you that, you'll have, that we have fellowship with one another. And he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And if we do not have that in common, you've got to have at least that much to have any fellowship whatsoever. First John chapter 1, it tells us that in the first five verses. So, we, we don't want to 
just have peaceful coexistence and sacrifice the truth. We don't want to have peaceful coexistence and not not have love in the political or moral or religious realm whatsoever. Notice she was given time to repent and she would not. God God was long-suffering. And yet we find Jesus says, Hold fast till I come. Let's read on down, beginning with verse 24. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, there were some that didn't fall for it. Aren't you always glad for a faithful number in the church that will stand for the doctrines of faith and of grace? If you have everyone in the church falling for anything that came along, the church wouldn't have any standards, wouldn't have any principles, wouldn't have any guidelines, would not teach the doctrines of grace and of faith. They'd say, anything goes. You want to bring in a square dance? You want to bring in liquor in the church? You want to have a card party? You want to make it worldly that way? You want to bring in false teaching? Well, if one person believes salvation is by works, let's let them teach it. If another one believes that you have to take a certain sacraments to be saved, let's let them teach it. Well, that would be the most corrupt church in the world, wouldn't it? And if you do that, if you do not have some standards to go by, and we find the principles of God, in God's Word that shows us that what salvation is about, what service is about, what fellowship is about, what love is about. And it tells us all of these things. And we have to go by Bible standards and Bible guidelines to have it. If we depart from that, we're not going to have anything. But notice verse 24, But unto, the, unto you I say, by the way, a time is gone, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. I'm not going to burden you down if you'll stand for the truth. But that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. I'm not going to make your burden any greater, Jesus says. Verse 26, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. He said we'll be rulers. We'll rule as prince and kings, priests and kings tells us that in a little while, and we've already had it in the first chapter. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessel of a potter shall they be broken to shivers. This rod, you take a rod of iron and hit an old clay vessel, and it'll sure tire up, won't it? Even as I received of my Father, he's going to give us power to rule and reign with him later on. And it says, and I will give him the morning star. Jesus said, I'm the bright and morning star. He'll give us of himself to us. And then the last verse says, He that hath an ear, if you want to hear, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, says.